unhappiest in the saddle. <laughs> a fellow sportsman. I am an FBI agent. Great Scott. What do you say we cut the chit-chat a-hole? Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Come with me if you want to live. Hello and welcome to Retro Ramble. I'm Charlie McGee. I'm George McGee. And this time, dear listeners, we are traveling back to the glorious, I want to say 80s. Was this on the verge of the 80s or was this 79? At 78 and then 80, I think we're... Yeah, so to. we, as the title suggests, we are covering not one, but two Superman films. Ain't that right, brother? That is correct, brother. And I think one of the very rare times that we've we've dipped back into the 70s as well usually we haven't broken that sort of 1980 threshold no i think we haven't really delved into we've uh, got very close with raiders being 81 but yeah i mean this we've this done is, uh, we've done some stuff on bond on our patreon channel but with the bond films we've only done view to a kill and goldeneye but yes this is something when you and I were drafting up a list when we came up with this podcast of what films do we want to talk about, I wouldn't be surprised if this was right up there, but you and I have, we've wanted to do it justice, haven't we? And we've wanted to pick the right moment, I suppose. Yeah, I think the thing is with a film like this, it's like, we were always going to do it. So it's like, well, when? When do we do it? And that time is now. I think... I think we'll get into this in the episode, but when we were growing up, this was like like Star Wars or a Bond film. This was a holiday film. This was on our TVs, on a bank holiday. Well, not as a bank holiday. This was a Christmas film, or it had cartoons on before it. We'll, we'll get into all of that, but a very big film that we've wanted to find the right time to approach. So I think that's the only reason we haven't got around to this. Well, uh, and it's also quite coincidentally, I say, we've we've been biding our time and we just thought now was the right time to do it but um i've just seen as we are recording this obviously you guys will be listening to it a few weeks later this week i think april 18th was the 85th anniversary of superman's first appearance uh, and wow. this this year is the 45th anniversary of superman the movie which uh yes made, made i'm sure that's good. what you had planned george i'm sure that's why we're doing it this year possibly sub subliminally so what what can people expect in this episode? We're going to be covering both Superman 1 and 2. Those These are the original motion picture releases. Yes, the theatrical cuts. These films, just as a quick intro, so the reason we're doing these films because uh, they were effectively filmed back-to-back, -back, and yes, it's a two-part story, so we we thought it would make sense to to cover them together however those of you that know your your superman law there is i think there's a few different cuts of superman the movie but there's a quite an infamous richard donner cut of superman 2. um however we will briefly touch on that in this episode but we will be giving that uh more focus as a patron special yeah, and I think it's only fair to do it. We bundle these films together for this episode because George and I could talk for hours upon hour and it wouldn't be fair to talk about... I mean, there's elements of this film, there's elements of the second film that are in the beginning of this film. So it would be, it's, it makes sense to do them together and it also makes sense that we give the Donner Cut its due in its own Patreon episode. So George, are you ready to get into it? 
I've got my cape on. I've noticed that. I've been telling you for a while. I mean, and nothing been... else. I didn't. I think that's just weird. I mean, wearing Y fronts on front of your trousers is one thing, but like what you're doing is just weird. So uh, let's hit it. 1978 to 1980. Anyway, end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, a brilliant time. And I don't know, comic book movies, are they ever going to make it? I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But here it is, Superman 1 and 2. My friends, I'm not given to wild and supported statements. And I tell you that we must evacuate this planet immediately. Jor-El, be reasonable. Once there was a civilization, much like ours, but with a greater intelligence, greater powers, and a greater capacity for good. In one tragic moment, that world was destroyed. But there was one survivor. Because of the wisdom and compassion of Jor-El, because he knew the human race had the capacity for goodness, he sent us his only son. His name is Kal-El. He will call himself Clark Kent. But the world will know him as Superman. This year, Superman brings you the gift of flight. Superman, the movie. Gets you every time. The music. Wow. Indeed, indeed. So, George, um, we're covering Superman 1 and 2. I know there's some serious production chat here to talk about. Um, but just to set us up here, how do we get this movie? How do we get both movies? Would you want to talk about first memories or I think I think uh one we we covered in pre-chat is probably a good way to set this up because um Superman means a lot to me. He means a lot to you, and I think he means a lot to everybody. So um what does Superman mean to you, George? We we covered quite early on in the podcast uh, Batman 89. And I think we even said in that episode that I was more of a, a Batman fan and you were more of a, a Superman fan. And there's a picture of you in, in our house in a, a homemade Superman outfit over my, over my crib. And I think, and you had a, a Superman duvet set that I believe is still going I think our, still doing nephew, the rounds still nephew, doing the rounds <laughs> our nephews your son and our kids like sleep in it occasionally ironically when I think of Superman I kind of think of of you and I kind of think of of us growing up and it was I remember it being a very big deal for you when we were growing up but I also remember having 
yeah, uh, watching it a lot on TV and and bank holidays and stuff. And I immediately think of even though you know it's it's been almost thirty years, I always think of uh, Superman for me is Christopher Reeve, and he is. I know he is for a lot of people, and it's like one of those things that people say that you know, whilst you can recast. James Bond, a lot of people, Christopher Reeve is the definitive Superman. And I think that's because, yeah, the, he captured it so well in these films. It's really been a, a tough act to follow. So, yeah, I have a lot of fond memories of growing up with these films. And then, yeah, he's since then, it's kind of always been in and out of popular culture. I remember us again s- sat around watching the probably on reflection, terrible Dean Cain, New Adventures of Superman or The Adventures of Lois and Clark. We was, we had such high hopes for that series. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I and I remember rediscovering it uh, at uni, uh, these films, because they were released uh, on DVD around that time. And I remember having, ironically, one and two as, as a box set. I didn't have the all four the Christopher Reeve ones because it showed like I think it was so important that those the the first two were uh, you know a part one and part two and I remember yeah rediscovering it kind of all over again and watching it in well then sort of higher the definition leap between v, you know VHS off TV to DVD was quite a jump uh, so yeah the, these films do mean a lot to me but what about you? Well, yeah, as you say, it's a good thing that I am uh, suffering from a cold or allergies or whatever, because I might cry. Where do I start with this? So, yeah, I was Target (laughs) is probably the best way to describe it. I was uh, something like, I think, discovering this as a, well, yeah, four four or five-year-old boy. Um, So this was my Marvel. Uh, I did later get obsessed with Spider-Man, I have to say, when I was a bit older. So both you know fair share of dc and marvel at the time yeah it was the the thing about this film for me i think why it's so important to retro ramble is that this was such an epic film it had uh such a grand scheme of things so much we're going george is going to talk about that when we go into production chat but you could see even then that when i watched this film the first time I saw this film, I didn't see this film at the cinema because I was born in 79. I saw this film. This film was shown at Christmas on terrestrial television in the United Kingdom. And before it came on, there was a Warner Brothers cartoon with Bugs Bunny um, or Roadrunner or whatever, but to make it feel like the movies. And they did that with Indiana Jones and they did that with Empire Strikes Back. And anybody else who can remember that was, it was a truly special event that it's surprising that nobody's tried to redo that again, but I guess it was an epoch generation thing. I think what's great, George and I are going to be talking about the original theatrical releases one and two. The Donnacut has had a big impact, but uh, yeah, I mean, this film introduced both superheroes and villains and great acting because Marlon Brando's not in this much, but what he does, what he what he what he arrives with, and where he was at in his career. Then you got Gene Hackman, and then what I didn't realize until I was much older was the performance of Christopher Reeve uh, mm-hmm. because. I kind of thought, well, yeah, he's playing Clark Kent there and he's playing Superman. But the fact that they're so night and day um, is astounding when I looked at it with, as you're saying, like, I think we both went back and had a look at this when it came on DVD. So, yeah, I think there was a big gap between these films. We had hope for Lois and Clark. 
I think that's what the Americans called it. It was just called mm-hmm. the new the new adventures of Superman in the UK. And <clears throat> we were so into it that when we were in the US, when we were traveling there, we found it and it was like, oh, it's, it's on here. It's called Lois, the Lois and Clark. It's, it's just called that. Um, we had high hopes for Superman four. Um, we, we, we still haven't, I've been a Milton Keynes since, you know, just because of Superman four, but um, no, I, it's, it's so big. It's such a big symbol. And I think the what I'd finally say is the fact that even between these original Christopher Reeve Superman films and the more recent ones, the man of steel, the symbolism is everywhere. People are wearing t-shirts. It's never gone away. It's part of the pop culture. Well, so yeah. it means, Arguably, you know, it's it's one it's the most famous f- symbol in the world. You know, it's up there with the the Nike tick. I, I'd say it's probably more famous than than the bat symbol, <laughs> though they're probably neck only neck because now. I would say the reason for that is only because there's been a few versions of the bat symbol. That's the only yeah. reason. Yeah, Whereas was... the, the, the Superman uh, S or Hope or whatever it means uh, or Free Pizza, we're not sure. The Kryptonians weren't clear about what it meant. Um, so yeah, that, that symbol hasn't changed much. I, th- I think that's the only reason it's probably more recognizable. It's like, yeah, as you say, it's like the Nike symbol. Mm. So yeah, it means I- a lot. And yeah, going back to this film pulls on the heartstrings. Just the fact that he died so tragically, he gave such a good performance and he was such a hero of mine, such a role model and such a role model for everyone. You know, he's Christopher Reeve, you know, just the nicest guy in the world. You know, it was like, he is Superman and I know he made other films, but he is Superman, you know, mm. to me. Well, yeah, I, I think it, it, it goes without saying that, you know, obviously we're kind of still in a, a comic book uh, cinematic boom, you know, whilst, you know, the Marvel cinematic universe is, is faltering a little bit. I think it's, it's safe to agree. That On its ass. <laughs> I, 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 I think all these every comic book film and this is you know i kind of didn't really give it you know i talked about in our batman episode about how that was such an influential film on the comic book boom and i think that was such an influential film on in terms of what a movie could be in terms of merchandising and that batman really brought that into its own whereas yeah this film even though there's you know over a 10 year gap between this and and batman tim burton's batman this film is you know this there's things in this film that you can look that i looked at and i was like oh that's where marvel get it from and it's and it's that balance of family something for everyone and i think that's you know this the whilst this film is probably a lot more epic in scope than a lot of films are uh, superhero comic book films are these days there's there's a lot that is you know it's got a lot to answer for and a, 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 you know it all traces back to this film essentially yeah i mean I, I don't know what to say it's like um what's weird for us and anybody of our generation which I, I'm, I'm guessing is quite a few of the retro ramble listeners out there it was funny that they, it felt like Hollywood or the movie industry, they had a stab at the the superhero film. This was the big one. And then there was Batman. And there was a little bit of Spider-Man. Spider-Man was really bad during the 80s. We all know nobody wants to take another look at it. Was, it was a, a poor guy on the end of a crane. Exactly. And just like really still lots of 70s hangover. In comparison, 
Because that Spider-Man film I'm talking about was made after this Superman. This Superman looks more futuristic than that Spider-Man film. But I mean, maybe that's down to budget. But th- there was this and that and the other. And now, God, you know, we are drowning in and Marvel of, you know, they are. The, it's what Steven Spielberg said five years ago. It'll go the way of the Western is what he said about Marvel. And it would seem. Uh, well, anyway, we're not talking about Marvel today. The fact is, is that. It was, we've seen superhero films and they came out, I think I'd like to say in a organic fashion. <laughs> I think, mm-hmm. I think Superman and, and, and Batman and Spider-Man were in done in an organic fashion. And then it's just ramped up to what we have today. But yeah, this is definitely part of the superhero movie origin. Absolutely. Shall, shall so we, shall we board shall we f- the train? Uh, no, I would like to take the yeah, but what? How how are we going to travel? Because uh, statistically sh- speaking, statistically speaking, flying is still the safest way to travel. Well, maybe, maybe we should get in the spiky spaceship and travel across space and time with, uh, and I can be your Marlon Brando. So, what did he eat in the spaceship? No, no, we're not going down to that yeah. level. Don't worry, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, we're not. We're not. Yes. Yeah, so, George, we are traveling to the Phantom Space that is Production Island. The Phantom, yes. the production Phantom Zone. Phantom. The, fan, the produ- production zone. Let's production. go. So, George, what did it take to bring us this movie? A shitload <laughs> um, <laughs> of money. <laughs> a shit, shitload of money and and broken careers and bruised egos. This goes back to a uh, a, a production uh, partnership, uh, father and son uh, partnership, Ilya and Alexander Solkind or Solkind Solkind. In the early 70s, they, they produced a few films and they'd had uh, a hit with two films, The Three Musketeers and its sequel, The Four Musketeers. I'll get back to that in a second. And they were looking for their next project. And Ilya Sulkind was he was the son. He was and he'd always had a passion for for comic books and and science fiction and he decided yeah it'd be a, a great new project for them to go after um his dad however alexander uh Solkind, had uh, had never heard of superman which is quite amusing together along with their producing partner a another a frenchman pierre spengler they approached warner brothers uh to buy the the, the film uh rights off them and at that time, and this goes back to, ironically, this goes back to Batman 1966. Wow. Because that left a, a really long and gaudy camp shadow over, over the you know superhero adaptations. And Warner Brothers had little interest in its film potential because of Batman 66. Because that was kind of probably, if you th- think about it, even though it was... Still pretty Over- fresh in the late seventies. Yeah, I can see that. And it would have been in syndication as well, so it would have still been on TV, you know, regular rotation. So it would have still been in the public consciousness. I mean, we we love Adam Adam West and uh, nineteen sixty Batman, but yeah, it it uh, did it did push back things. Um, DC, however, so DC were owned by Warner Brothers at, at this point. DC were keen to protect the legacy and challenge the soul kinds on, on all sorts of creative approvals. And after weeks of drawn out talks, the soul kinds went back to Warner Brothers and were like, we want to make these movies, but DC are being really difficult and making it really hard. And w- as Warner Brothers saw 
no no money in and they were just like they they basically overruled DC and said, yeah, you can have them. So they sold the film and TV rights to the Solkinds for for four million dollars, which even then was probably quite a, a, a cheap cost for a twenty five year lease. So that that's why it's been on telly so much. <laughs> <laughs> probably um but the this is i every day is a school day and i i learned something from this so basically warner brothers offered the soul kinds a negative pickup deal and that basically meant that the soul kinds had to finance the movie up front and then warner brothers would buy back uh would pay for the american distribution when the film was ready to release, i.e. when the film negative, the reels were ready. So that's what a negative pickup deal is. So Warner Bros. were like, yep, you can have have the rights. Um, we'll we'll get involved. Um, but um, yeah, you're going to have to pay for it up front yourself and we'll, we'll pay you some money back so when the, it's ready. So the entire cost of production was covered by the Skull Codes? Yeah, up front. Obviously, and wow. It wasn't covered by them out of their own pockets. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where it gets interesting. So they agreed as part of the Solkind's pitch, they said they were going to produce and supervise filming of Superman and Superman 2 simultaneously, as they had done with um, their The Three Musketeers. So The Three Musketeers was originally supposed to be one film, and because it was so lengthy and they weren't going to be able to originally they were oh we'll just release it as a big film with an intermission they were struggling to get to their release date so they made the decision to split it into two films however they thought they could get away with paying their actors for one film and lots of legal um (laughs) legal cases followed Uh, And as a result, I was reading about this. There's now a thing in the Screen Actors Guild. There's the soul kind clause where you have to be paid for every film you appear in. Can you remember intermissions? Yeah. So that was the plan. But yeah, as I say, yeah. So the soul kinds had to finance. They, you know, they, they pitched it and now they had to actually fund it. And to draw investors, what do you have to do? You have to get some big names involved. So to write the script, uh, they they said, "Oh, we've got to get a, a someone a, a big name," and I think they originally approached um, William Goldman, who's, who's quite a famous uh, scriptwriter in the seventies and eighties. Uh, he wasn't that into the the Superman law, so he he sort of turned it down after one or two meetings. But then uh, someone who was really hot around that time was author Mario Puzo, who's most famous for uh, writing The Godfather. And obviously in the 70s, The Godfather movies were huge, you know, were were one of the biggest things in the 70s, I think it's safe to say. And the so, movie industry itself, it was driving yeah. the movie industry, yeah. So, yeah, they got Mario Puzo on board and they asked him to write a serious science fiction epic. Puzo, he comes back with, it depends on who you speak to, some say a 300-page script, but uh, Dick Donner says it it, it was a 500-page script when he come, came back with. And if you think of the old rule in script writing is um, a page is a minute of film, so a 500-minute <laughs> film. Wow. So, um, and even the, the Soul Kinds deemed uh, Puzo's script was too camp, too much Greek tragedy and Shakespearean elements and would have cost around 500 million to make. Too so, camp? Come on. He's got knickers on the, on, outside his trousers. He's wearing a uh, cape. 
I think after a couple of drafts, Puzo bows out. But ultimately, as you can see in the credits, he still gets screenplay and story credit and was paid, I think, uh, like over half a million. Um, They brought on some different writers, uh, David Newman and his wife, uh, Leslie Newman, to sort of try and take out some of the more uh, objectionable material uh, and the excessive amount of comedic scenes. Um, Look at him go! (laughs) <laughs> and uh and but but then it, well well we'll get to it so then they looked at getting a uh, a director on board and i'll get into coulda woulda shoulda uh later on with all the the directors that were considered um but they ultimately and, and it, there were there were some big names uh in included in that uh search and consideration but it was all ultimately offered to uh guy hamilton who is probably most famously behind Goldfinger and Live and Let Die. I'm not sure you pronounce Goldfinger quite correctly there. How do, how do you say it again, George? Goldfinger. What's that? And then there's the way Connery said, Goldfinger. Goldfinger. So, yes, uh, the Soul Kinds were impressed with Hamilton's work. Even with Puzo and Hamilton on board, though, they were still still struggling to get the extra investment they needed for the rest of production. And Solkind Senior was was ready to pull the plug when he gets a call uh, from a, a Hollywood agent called Kurt Frings, who says to him, I can get you Brando. And wow. that's and that's when that's enough. And that was it. That was the the lightning in a bottle because again, because of the godfather you know brando's kind of career had been up and down but he was hot again after after the godfather the godfather was a huge hit in the early 70s and that just um got everyone's attention they originally offered brando 2 million he negotiated uh 3.7 million pay packet for 10 minutes of screen time but he also got a percentage of the box office gross, which would ultimately earn him $14 million. Pitching. Once Brando signs on, uh, Gene Hackman was keen to get on board because he was always keen to work with Brando. Because again, Brando was such a sort of legend. Uh, Hackman was like, yeah, I want to be in a film with Brando. And they were like, well, the the only role that we can give you is, is it would be Lex Luthor. And he doesn't share any scenes. He's like, I don't care if he's if he's involved. I'm I'm keen to get involved as well. Just attach me to this project. Yeah. So they had um, they were building sets. They were doing flying tests. They hadn't got a Superman uh, cast at this point, but they were looking. I say they they had a few blocks uh, set up, and they were building sets in Italy. However, there was one wrinkle in that in the fact that. They found out Marlon Brando couldn't film in Italy because there was a warrant out for his arrest because of a sexual obscenity charge from the film Last Tango in Paris. Basically, that was a really controversial film, and I think that film was banned in Italy. So Marlon Brando couldn't set foot in Italy. What did he do in that film? <laughs> Something with a stick of butter, apparently. Um, Something, so he flipped the Range Land Rover over, and it started first time. <laughs> so, um, because of that, and at the time, the low cost of uh, the pound, it was decided they would move production to England. However, they encountered another wrinkle because Guy Hamilton was a tax exile, and that meant he could only My spend God. sixty days in the UK a year. 
So what do you do, Charlie? Do you lose Marlon Brando, which is getting all your money, or do you lose your director? Really sorry, Guy, but we're in a bit of a tough spot here, buddy. So Guy Hamilton's out, and they're, they're back on the search for a director. And when they start looking around... Uh, one person's name that came up off the list on off the back of the success of The Omen was Richard Donner. So Richard Donner agrees to come on. Um, they offer him $1 million. I think that was like, I think he got a hundred grand for his work on The Omen. Um, wow. But he was like, yeah, this is a huge script. Brando's on board. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in. And apparently before uh, Donner even came on board, um, six million had been sent spent on pre-production by Hamilton on concepting and tests. So they were burning through money. Um, Why do you when- think that was? Do you think that was because they were like, this is they? It seems to me from everything you're saying that this was from the from the from the off. It was going to be an epic film. That was the idea. Like the song was like, we're going to make two. It's going to be massive. Yeah, so I think with with Mary Puzo's script, it was quite evident early on. They were like, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have to split this in two. and and in the Soul Kind's eyes, that was like, "Well, we're gonna get double the money in that case." Um, and yeah, I think it was because they wanted it that it wasn't going to be maybe again like it's if you it, it traces back to the the adam west batman series that you know that was quite cheap and cheerful tv and this had to have really high production values maybe that's why they were just chucking money at it saying no it has to look good we have to get the best people involved so yeah dick donner came on board and he was dis- dissatisfied even with all the edits that uh, the newmans had made he was still really dissatisfied. He thought it was still a really campy script. So he brings on his friend, Tom, Tom Mankiewicz, who again has, there's another link to Bond there. And because Bond was, um, Tom Mankiewicz was responsible for reshaping Bond for Roger Moore. So he did, uh, I think he was the main writer on Live and Let Die. And he did a whole bunch of rewrites. He was like script doctor for Bond throughout the 70s. Uh, he did like you know yeah he did diamonds off forever he did live and let die so yeah the he, tra- a, the, the, he did the transition then. yeah essentially yeah. yeah he did he did the transition and he and even you know with those films have a, a really good sense of humor uh some great action but he knows you know that right balance of humor and action and Ma- according to Mankwitz, he says yeah, not a word from Puzo's script was used. It was well written, but it was still a ridiculous script. According to him, it was it was 550 pages. I said to, to Dick Donner, you can't shoot the screenplay because you'll be shooting for five years. And Dick Donner claimed that the shooting script that the Solkinds had, they were planning to shoot all 550 pages. So again, there's a lot of stuff coming out that whilst the soul kinds were money people. They didn't really have a great grasp on proper production and making a movie. But considering they were paying for it, it would have been helpful if they had. Yes, yes, you'd think that. So one of the key things that Mike Witz did was um, rework the the dynamic between uh, to make low like focus on Lois and Clark and make that the core of the story. And I think we're jumping ahead here, but the, the the banter between the two of them is great in this film. 
the you know sort of classic Hollywood comedies. I'm thinking, you know, the the Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. It's very quick fire, isn't it? Not just that, but the whole positioning of it is all about that. Is that I think let's be sensible here. You know, just as you and I, when we take our children to the cinema now, we can tell that there's clearly stuff that's put in there for us. Yeah. Imagine our parents taking us to see Superman. There's the dynamic between Lois and Clark for me. It's very, very much like what the, it, that relationship, that fast talking, playing of each other, even just the way that the camera shoots them. It's very Cary Grant. It's very mm. um, Clark Gable almost, you know, it's, it's, they Rapid could be, yeah. yeah, it's like, blah, 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 blah. It's, like, <laughs> it's uh, Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's 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 that sort of thing. And uh, there's a lot of classic things in it. And yeah, well, it's... Well, it's, it's interesting that uh, in the special features, Mankowitz breaks it down. And you basically said that there's, there's basically like three mini movies in the first film. If you think about it, there's the, the stuff on Krypton or Krypton, as as Brando yeah. calls it. Krypton. Um, <laughs> um, so there's the Krypton stuff, which he made intentionally. He said it, you know, all the dialogue uh, is overblown. It's very biblical. You know, it's the end of days and yeah. and and the, the and almost Shakespearean. So you've got that section. Then you've got the the bit in Smallville, and that is you know pretty much like um sorry the bit <laughs> the, the the bit the the the, 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 the mini series the mini series in in Smallville, um which is a bit like a, a an an arty drama sort of you know ex, as existential it's a you know it's like a living Norman Rockwell painting uh, and then, piece <laughs> yeah and then and then you get to. 45 minutes in you get to uh to metropolis and that's and, when you know, you're missing out the bit with the fortress of solitude as well <laughs> oh yes of course um so yeah you've got three movies essentially in this and and obviously yeah the 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 dialogue and the setups and the cinematography changes between them but all in all i think across like for even though there was pickups for Superman 2, I think it was a 19-month filming schedule, which is wow. ridiculous when you think the average, I think uh, most two films, first, like yeah. a couple of months, two, three months, and then there's a bit of pre-production. Usually looking at about six months to a year for a, for a film to be filmed and produced, never mind just filming. We'll quickly touch on casting. For um, So I'm going to, again, I'm going to break my rule about coulda, woulda, shoulda, because there were so many people considered. Every actor, it felt, feels like every actor in Hollywood was, was a considered or approached, and then even people that weren't actors. But as I say, I'll get into that. But they had on, Warner Brothers had top of their list, Robert Redford, even Al Pacino um, were on their list. But as as Mike Witt says, they were good actors, but they're nothing like Superman. Because they had Brando, they had Hackman, and one again when they were publicizing it, they flew a banner over Cannes and it said Superman the movie, Brando, Hackman coming soon. So they, you know, there there was that pressure was off to to hire a big name for Superman, and they ended up uh picking up Christopher Reeve, who I think had been in maybe one or two films. He might have been in, I think, a, like some he'd done some TV, but he was a graduate of Juilliard, which is a respected drama school in New York. And he apparently he, he nailed his screen test. He turned up and he was only 24 years old at the time. 
It was probably, I think Juilliard is the probably most renowned, isn't it, in the US? Uh, I think so. I think, I think, there's I think like for- Juilliard, there's Broadway, and then there's Hollywood. <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah. in terms of what you're expected to do. Well, it's, it's, it is like the Harvard of drama school. Yeah. Is this a good time to talk about his acting? Yeah, so I've I've done the bulk of um, of production. Obviously, I've got a bit more trivia about the between save it the decision between one and two to when when to cut it. So, but yeah, we can get into talking about Christopher Reeve and, and the film in general. Well, let's talk about Superman. So, yeah, as as a as a kid, I'm like, oh yeah, he's just I I think I would just sort of glaze over the bits. Well, yeah, it's just Clark Kent. He's just pretending. He's pretending. He's not. He's not. He's Superman doing something. He's playing a role. Whereas now I look back on that, as I said in the intro, and I'm just blown away by the the contrast, the performance of Clark Kent. Well, there's it's not the Superman. The Superman is actually not that. He's just like, could you play? His? It's it's so uh, boilerplate, as the Americans would call it. It's so like, play a superhero, play a tough guy. Whereas yeah, he's so Kent's, stoic. Yeah, the, the 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 Clark Kent stuff is on another level. It's like Marx Brothers type comedy. It's and uh, again, it's yeah, it's it's that Cary Grant thing, and I think that's something yeah that that Dick Donner picks up on and Mankiewicz picks on that that there was a lot of ticks that Reeve incorporated in terms of you know pushing up the glasses and the the stammering and the stuttering that wasn't in obviously that wasn't in the script or a lot of it wasn't in the script and a lot of it was that he really yeah just grew into it and there's a clip that does the rounds on twitter all the time where there's that bit where he transforms like and i'm not talking about you know him running into a phone box or the revolving door there's a bit where he's in lois's apartment and he's, glasses. And, he, and he's deciding whether to, to to reveal his identity to her and you see him just completely transform his posture and it's such an amazing bit of just it's a simple acting. acting. Yeah, that's it. It's <laughs> acting, and it's just such a simple thing. Of he's been carrying himself differently the whole time. Well, he's and, hunched over. Yeah. yeah, and and it's something that was actually incorporated into the comics. I think it's All Star Superman. There's, you can see um, the artist sketches has like Clark Kent as this uh, like lumbering, dopey sort of Hulk thing, and they they show this like sketch that it's yeah, it is him just over slouching and because of his physiology and whatever he can be constantly in that position without putting himself in in pain or giving himself a hunchback and then he writes himself up when he's superman and it's and again it adds to that well how can you believe it's it's just a pair of glasses you know how why can you not see through that disguise because it's more than that and that that the fact that, that clark kent and i think it's something that None of the other supermen, supermen, the other, uh, the other film, you know, the other actors. If you think about Dean Kane, you think about Henry Cavill. What's his face, Brandon Routh? Well, Brandon Routh was kind of doing a, a Christopher Reeve. He was doing it the other way. He, a, a bit of a parody, but homage. Uh, no, he was doing a Christopher Reeve homage. But n- none of them have really captured that that bumblingness and that that stark contrast between Clark Kent and Superman. All, I mean, obviously, we never really properly got to see Clark Kent in the, the the Henry Cavill ones. It was, you know, it was a little bit in Batman versus Superman, but he always just felt too cool for me. Yeah, and 
I think that's why, you know, we can move on from talking about Christopher Reeve. And I'd say the segue for that is that what I love about his performance, looking at it as an adult, because obviously it's it's always been there for me, Superman as a film, and it was an introduction into film and all of those things. But when I look at what he did is that as an actor, he's obviously looked at, okay, so what is the big disguise? How do I hide myself from the world? How do I protect my image? And it's like, well, I'm going to put on glasses and there's the hat as well. It's the other thing I love is that um, I can remember saying when I was younger, it's like, oh, I can't wait for hats to come back because I thought it was such a cool additional accessory for a guy to have with a suit. And then when they did come back, it was in like R&B and Justin Timberlake and it wasn't what I was hoping for. But I'm just saying that he he had his costume. He had two costumes, but then he's like, it's not enough. And I think what we're talking about, that's the extra layer. Yeah, that performance, that bumblingness, like, and it's in much more in in Superman two than it is in Superman one. Where he's, oh, do you want to go in? And he's bumbling and he's knocking stuff over, and then it's weird. That's the unforeseeable magic that I get going back to this now. Is is, that's that's where I get that's the additional value that you don't get on the first watch as a child, anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. You're the you're 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 bowled over by the action sequences and and the epicness of it. And it's, again, it's those, those little things. It's, it's, you know, you go back to those, the performance and it's, again, it's why people are, you know, still championing, you know, Michael Keaton as Batman. It's because it's a, it's a very unique take on and very different characters between their, their alter egos. So, yeah, should we just go through the film? So we've we've kind of talked about it a bit, but yeah, you have that the opening with Brando. Say what you like about Brando. I mean, a lot of people do class him as one of the greatest actors ever of all time, and I know he's had a questionable personal life, and he's been a bit of a or was a bit of a dick, and but he really power his, power he, corrupts. <laughs> but 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 he he earns his paycheck in this. It's there's such gravitas, and apparently he was spent the whole time. I, I sent. I think I, I told you to check out that that interview with Terence Stamp on Parky. But apparently, yeah, Brando spent his whole time looking at cue cards around, pasted all around the set. Didn't That's learn how, his lines. Like, didn't couldn't be bothered to learn his lines, and he kind of yeah had checked out by that point. And again, there's a great clip that we can share. Um, where Christopher Reeve is on David Letterman and he uh, goes to town on, on Brando and just says, yeah, you know, he's he's one of the best actors of our generation and he could be a real leader and inspirational, but he just doesn't care anymore. He just doesn't care about the craft and he just, you know, just want, he's just in it for the money. Um, but even when he's reading off cue cards, it feels epic, doesn't it? Well, I, I think I have I have this weird relationship that obviously watching it at that age and the way he's talking to it, the whole father son dynamic, and he do, he is sporting a bit of a Ray Ray haircut going. He on. does, yes, he he does look a bit like our dad. I think even at that age was was full silver fox mode, wasn't he? And he had similar yeah. kiss kill. And the fact that he's telling you what to do and he's chastising him. And it's like, so yeah, on one level, I think that's probably why Superman resonated with me so much. Not that I saw myself so much in Superman, just that I was getting told off 
and making just as many mistakes in the for- in the fortress of solitude which i guess you could call my bedroom as superman was but yeah uh brando because you've got to remember those there's all those bits in the fortress of solitude because i i forget that it's like he's hardly in it he's just in the but if you watch all of the different versions and there are quite a few different versions of the original the superman film uh he's in it a lot he's in it a lot uh there's there's a lot of back and forth and i actually think that's some of the best performances we get out of reeve those dynamics when when you you really see his range like he's going all guns blazing and that's yeah. not i think in, i don't think that's in the original theatrical release i think it's in the I, second I get one me, where, I get, where, I get where he's up. where he's angry at him and he's shouting yeah at him. yeah that's in it's the second really it's a brilliant performance I think we have to, there's a few things we have to touch on with, with Krypton. Obviously you've got, you know, we love a good miniature and, you know, wow. that's, that's one of the in, things. Just in these films, so many glorious, glorious miniatures. So many glorious miniatures. And yes, they're probably a bit more obvious in, in high definition, but they're still, it's amazing creativity. I also love the creativity of the Kryptonian outfits, which are uh, essentially, I've put my notes, high-vis cycling outfits. Safe at night, safe, safe safe during safe during a planet destruction, going for a run, ticks yeah. a lot of boxes. Yeah, I mean it is it's it's a stylistic choice and it kind of mostly sort of pays off, even though it does look very papery. No, but it looks so futuristic. It did if it's at the 70s time. future. Um, yeah, but that's we'll laugh at the future of today tomorrow. Yeah, there's there's a lot of cool production design there. The Smallville stuff, there's not really much to to talk about. I mean, I've already said how beautiful it looks in terms of it is like a live Norman Rockwell painting. Some of the like cinematography by by Jeffrey Unsworth is is beautiful and really adds to that epicness, doesn't it? Well, for me, it's two things. It's that Rockwell painting image and it's the music. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It, we haven't what, given John Williams that, credit for, yeah, fantastic so, school. Let's talk about the score. Where was Williams at in his career right now? Because for he me, he was so hot because he would have just been off. This would have been off the back of Jules. Okay, no. So we. This is a guy. That's what I want to ask. Is oh, that, this is the difficult second album, maybe for for for, for John Williams. No, so but it's so like he did Jaws. He's done this and then uh, Star, Star Wars. Wars. Yeah. No, sorry. Uh, so Jaws, Star Wars, and then this. Because Star Wars but was 77. For me, it's it's part of the... Like, when I went back to this and watched it in preparation for this episode, it's like, it's that orchestral stuff. There's just Sweeping so much going... School. Yeah, and you, yeah. it carries you away. But you're right. It's the imagery and the music. But you've got to talk about that music. And, like, I, when I say that music, like Star Wars, there's so much. You know, like, I'm I'm sorry to say, but, like, I think if you look at the comic, to compare it to the comic book films of today, Marvel don't, doesn't have that range. They'll have like, they'll use some modern day stuff. They'll do this. And then they've, they've got like music that's kind of like. And they've got oh, the odd theme, like the Avengers theme, the Alan yeah, Silvestri one is good. It's movie music. It's not, it's not like done for one film because they're yeah. planning to make 20 films. You know what well, I mean? It's like, well, that's it. I think, you know, John Williams has done, is probably my favorite composer, one of the best composers of all time. That's, you know, I'd say no, not many people are going to argue that. But yeah, I love the, the as you say, the range in in this. It's really sweeping. There's a lot of, there's, there's love themes. There's, 
there's sadness, there's bombasticness, there's, you know, there's there's everything in this and it really makes this film. And it's, you know, something that you and I talked about with um, seeing uh, Superman Returns, you know, in 2006, got like chills when you heard the first opening beats the dun 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 you know at the start of that we were we were in the cinema together for that yeah and it was it was icicles on the neck it was this like they had the the graphics the credit scene the opening credit scene shorter thank yeah. god thank um, god and then the music and that's what i'm talking about and i'll never forget that it's maybe it was the sound technology but like when this when the the st- the the starry glass spaceship goes through the when it leaves Krypton and then when there's in the second film, it's on the credits, there's that moment, there's that crescendo and it's, um, and it keeps coming back, but there's like that, that bit in Smallville, it's like, it's all like the strings of music. And it's like, there's so much captured in a scene, like that scene where he walks out to the field and his mum comes out behind him and the music's playing. And it's like, you could capture, it's like a coming of age film, you know, like the the boy all becomes that, the man and leaves. It's just like it pulls at the heartstrings, and it's like all that bit with bo- um, Jonathan Kent's death gets me every time. Gets yeah, me it, like it's a real sucker punch, and that's something that they really f- dropped the ball with in Man of Steel. That in Man of Steel, <laughs> you it's could a tornado. Have, it's a tornado. You could have saved him. He just told you not to. And that's the whole I- irony of Jonathan Kent's death in this is the fact that he has a heart attack and he. You know, as fast as he can be, he's not going to be able to save him. And it's, and it's a re- again, it's you know, um, it's a, a brilliant performance. I think he's like a, a a classic actor, Glenn Glenn Ford, I think it is. Um, and he was, you know, one of the like renowned actors from the fifties and sixties. So he, he that was a bit of star casting there, even though he was, you know, not in his prime. But yeah, again, as you say, it's that score. And even though you have. The poor guy who's playing young Clark Kent that Richard Don has made the decision. Yep, just get Christopher Reeve to overdub him. Even though, even with yeah. that, it's still a, a you know, it's still very heartfelt. Yeah, and I do actually think it sounds horrible to say it, but it actually probably makes it more cohesive because it's his voice. It yes. just looks weird <laughs> looking back. Well, apparently, we had, it, we, we had grown up with Bond films with, with bad dubbing. Really bad ADR, so really yeah. bad dubbing, and yeah, that's that was that was something I, I haven't got in my notes, but that was something like you could never get away with that today, could you? I mean, you think about as we've what, talked ADR? about ADR, in terms of yeah, completely replacing a character's voice. If you think about, we've talked as you say, it was commonplace in the Bond films, they did it in this, they did it in Flash Gordon, the guy, uh, Sam, Sam Jones Jr., is it completely du- redubbed. They were looking, we talked about it in our Masters of the Universe episode, they were looking to do it with Dolph Lundgren, but can you imagine if that emerged like today in a film, like, oh yeah, we've we've cast this person, but we've completely changed it. Because you, you wouldn't be able to c- cover it up. I think a lot of people just would take it for granted, but like, oh yeah, that's, that's that actor. I want to say like mid to late 90s was where it was phased out. Yeah. It was it's still got- happening early, early 90s, it was still happening. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, I suppose when you've got like people bringing the box office with thick accents like Arnie, like JCVD, like Stallone, maybe it's just like, well, no, it's, I remember someone pointing out to me is, is that star power and building your film around a star. Someone saying to me about 
um, the new Wonder Woman, well, newish Wonder Woman film, saying basically they've made the whole uh, of the you know the the population on Themyscira speak like Gal Gadot. They've all given her her accent because it's like, oh well, why has she got this accent? Because they all speak like that on this island. Yeah, makes sense. Everybody, it's not weird. It's, yeah, it's, it's everyone uh, speak like Gal Gadot. It's fine. No one will notice. Should we get to Metropolis? Because we need to talk about one man we've we've talked about his casting, but we need to show some love to Gene Hackman, the greatest Mr. criminal mind of our time. Ah, uh, um, uh, Mr. Luther. Well, there's the threesome. There is, it it is a fantastic threesome. I love the dynamic between Luther, Tess Marker and and Otis. And it's, yes, they're the bumbling oafs, but I just, yeah, I just love the the dynamic between them that the constant, like, he's just like rubbing his temples. Like, why do I surround myself? There is a line about surrounding himself with idiots or something, isn't there? Yeah. It's like, um, no, but there's so much philosophy. There's so much like well-spoken suppose like you give them eyes, but they cannot see Lord. And yeah, he comes across as, as he he's believable, you know, it's the super intelligent thing, but he's got his hottie, he's got his hottie wife. And then he's got Otis. Uh, I, I, I think, I think that's what's, what's funny. And it shows how much of a staple this is in our life is that George and I would still, we could say one word, like uh, you just say Otis Berg. Otisburg. Otisburg. Uh, but Do you want to see my left arm? A, a longer arm. <laughs> yeah, I think we've got that muscle memory. And I going going back to it, I have to admit, because I've got all of the versions of Superman. I'm not obsessed. But I really do enjoy the one where you get a lot more of uh, Lex Luthor what? and the three sim and all of the 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 Superman's entrance into Lex Luthor's where, lair. Where he has out. to go through the like the the guns and stuff the fire and the guns and the frost. And there's even that bit where they've got some sort of reptile creature. Uh, All right. Uh, It's been a while since I've watched the, the extended one of them that looks like a lift shaft. And at the, and and Otis like, have you fed the beast? And they go to the beast and like, you don't know if it's a puma or a bear or whatever, but anyway, at the end, they're going to throw in Miss Tessmarker. And that's when Superman comes in at the end. And basically catches him, but yeah, uh, there's okay. a so much shot of this film that they they could have made three different versions, and there is, I think, there's at least four different. Well, versions uh, well, again, that I'm getting ahead of myself, but you know, you joked about is that is the reason why it's always on TV, is so the soul kinds could make more money. But basically, the soul kinds would make money by putting out different edits, and the more the longer the film was on. Uh, so the like the longer the runtime, the more money they made. So they had v- effectively, they would sell back in the day when you could. They would sell to different TV networks. Oh yeah, have this extended cut, and we'll put these scenes back in because they were being paid for by the minute, essentially. And that's why you get it was a time where you get random TV edits and people like oh well, and they started cropping back in in the age of DVD and deleted scenes and stuff, but. Yeah, it was down to the power of who had final cut. They were like, oh, yeah, we can put out another cut and and get some more money for it. What I love about this film in terms of where it stands in cinema history is that this was a big budget film that was trying to look super futuristic. And this came up recently when we were talking about Armageddon 
uh, about Armageddon for everything we say, it still looks good. This film, there's some bits of it we say this film was made, wasn't even the 80s. For a 70s action film, this film is impressive. But again, it's it's uh, something that I threw a lot of credit at for um, Tim Burton's Batman. There's whilst it's really futuristic and you've got the the, the Krypton stuff and and all the action scenes, you've still got a stylistic choice from Richard Donner that they've gone for, like you're saying, the the hats and the the cuts of the suits is very art deco seventies. Yeah, it, no, 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 it's it's, it's not like seventies. You you don't really see. Or you've got a little bit of people in flares and stuff, but Clark Kent's cut of suits and stuff. It's very. Like the there was the Richard Fleischer was it Richard Fleischer there was the the really old Superman cartoons from the forties and it's more like a little bit of a nod to that nineteen forties or late thirties you know the origins of Superman, but I, again it's sort of what jumps back to what we were chatting about with Raiders of the Lost Ark because it's in a way it's a bit of a period piece it doesn't date it as much. You've just sorry you've just mentioned something that I want to talk about the start of Superman film where they really do honor the comics and it starts in black and white and you've got the rotating daily planet and you've got, and it's like, you've got that whistling music. Where yeah. does that feature in the film? Isn't it right at the beginning? Yeah. yeah. Just right at the start. It's And, it, and it's that I feel of... it's like the transition between that's, I think a nod to the black and white comics, the heritage, yeah. the legacy. But it was it was a big thing for Richard Donner. He, he said, uh, "I think I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, but it's like verisimilitude, verisimilitude. I think it is the verisimilitude. Yeah. yeah, which is basically making it feel as real as possible. And that was that was his mantra. It's like, yeah, we're going to do this, and it's yes, it's going to be it's going to be fun. It's going to have some comedy, but it's going to have it's going to have drama. It's going to have romance, and it needs to be believable." You know, or the people, or people like you know, like the nineteen sixties Batman. People are going to laugh at it, not with it. Like uh, I think, well, there's two things to mention there. One, I think Christopher Nolan has leaned into that a bit with his Batman. Yeah, absolutely. And as we saw recently, Christopher Nolan has also lent into sixties Batman in the fact that the Dark Knight Rises has ended. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. You got to fly it out over the ocean or throw it into the ocean. You know. You go all the way to one side of the spectrum, Charlie, you're going to end up back at the other. That's all I'm going to say. Um, true. Yeah, in terms of we have the, the the montage of Superman saving everyone. And again, there's so many bits that you and I still joke about where <laughs> the, 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 the crook bangs the crowbar off his back. Bad vibrations. The you know the the cat burglar and all that. There's there's so much scene so much that's unnecessary, but there's, there's, brilliant. There's so, <laughs> but it basically that goes back to what I was saying about setting the template for Marvel movies. That balance of summing up the hero's powers, but dropping in that humor is so so ingrained in the Marvel template, and it you know it traces back to here. You know, in terms of. Yes, you could have, and they kind of do it a bit in the um, in Superman Returns and the Brian Singer one. They have a bit of a montage of him doing stuff, and it's very Poe faced. and And that film as a whole, we'll probably get to uh, it. That's, a- I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but that is DC twenty first twenty first century DC. Unfortunately, has been too Poe faced. Yeah. Christopher Nolan just made it work in his favor by giving us great action to go with it. But and it even- works with Batman. 
It works. It works. Yeah. works for Batman, not Superman. Yeah. It needs to be hope. That's what the yeah. symbol means. We've already talked about the chemistry between Kidder and Reeve, but yeah, shout out to Margot Kidder. She is, she is brilliant in this, and they have such good chemistry, especially yeah, that interview scene. Um, but I do have a question. How much is she making to afford that apartment? It, it's it only really dawns on you. It's like after they've done that when you be- George, when you become George, an adult, Charlie. <laughs> it dawns George, on you when you when George, you're paying a mortgage. <laughs> not just that, the fact of how central in in New York she is, and the fact that it's a tiny apartment. She's got this enormous terrace. She's in the center of New York, and it's when he flies away after they've had that. Um, God, we had a lot of fun going back to this film when we were students. That whole scene with them flying through. Can you read my mind? Can you read my mind? <laughs> I'm just a girl in a world. Oh, it's God. That, the weakest that a, point in this film. Weakest point in this film. A very long, un- unnecessary monologue. In What is it? When internal monologue, yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know if it feels... But she's super hot. She's beautiful. She's seems vulnerable and he's like the the contrast between the two of them i i i get the feeling you know like when you see um chris hemsworth like with natalie portman there's yeah. that sort of thing going on it's just like looking up at him and you're just like wow and the size difference you know but she just seems so um and she seems like a no nonsense pulitzer surprise she much better than in the superman returns version of lois yeah Lane. yeah again it was I a think, bit flat i think as much as, um, well, yeah, Kate Bosworth in Superman Returns, really flat. Um, I do love, I, I love Amy Adams as an actress. I think she's a fantastic actress. And I, her her Lois Lane is okay, but it just doesn't have that that spark that Marco Kidder has, um, that, I, I, that feistiness. I, I think the problem is with Chris Reeve and Marco Kidder, you feel like they're good enough for each other, whereas with... Amy Adams, you feel like she's punching above her weight with Henry Cavill. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> is that he is, cruel? Is that uh, he is such a dreamboat? I mean, he's a dreamboat. I mean, she's she's beautiful and she can be very sexy. But yeah, Henry Cavill is a marvelous human being. He's a marvelous specimen of a man. But I just think Kidder was hotter. But I don't know. I was uh, this. I was in. I wasn't is, into. Is, the, the is thing this, is, I think this I is ingrained in your sexual awakening, isn't it, Charlie? Is this a is this a confession? Not at all. I was actually the opposite. I wasn't into women. So I was like six years old. I was like, so I was, I was yeah. deep into, into Christopher. I was just Reed. really into Christopher. Reed. Uh, it's that sort of sexual awakening. Yeah. Anyway, swiftly moving on. Anyway, so let's get, uh, I'm just looking over some of my, my notes on this film. Lex Luthor for the greatest criminal mind of, of our time. His plan Makes isn't that smart. <laughs> the, the, the plan of getting the nuclear codes. Again, the, should, do you want to see my long arm? I mean, yes, he's got How a could backup. it fail? How could, How it, could fail? it fail? And he's got a backup plan. He's using Miss Tess Marker and, and, and her uh, assets. Is, is, that, uh, is that JR? Is that Larry? Yes, Hagman? it is. Yeah. Like we we spot that back in the day since yeah. forever. But there's that yeah. crazy eyes front. Yeah, I'm just going to give her mouth to mouth resuscitation. Yeah, yeah. I I think those scenes stuck out to us back in the day. We're like, this is an awfully long winded way of achieving this, and that's something that stuck out in watching the other versions of the theatrical that's available. There's a lot of other scenes they that have been cut from what we grew up with, and it was good because. Just too much time given to something yeah. very. 
and I think that's I I haven't um, you know whilst we love comic book films and and I've I've got a few of of the, the you know the the more sort of well known graphic novels I haven't read a huge amount of uh, Superman comics I mean I've got uh, Red Sun. And obviously, yeah, the uh, uh, Dark Knight Returns and I say All-Star Superman. And one of the things that does come out of my, my limited knowledge of the comic book base is that I think Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor is played up, played much more for laughs. And obviously you've got, yeah, I don't think Otis or almost Tess Marker feature in the comics, but he's much more of a an evil genius and a, and a rich, powerful, influential. I think in, in the comics at one point he does become president and stuff like that. You and mean he's more, more like uh, the Dean Cain type guy? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was probably more, more faithful to, to the comic laws. And again, it's something that, but I think Gene Hartman is so much fun in this. And I say there's so much fun between the three of them. And, you know, we've already talked about the Otisburg and the sort of, but Lex, my mother lives in Hackensack. And he just looks at her and just shakes his head. Not anymore. <laughs> I just really relate to him. I feel like what he arrives with in terms of his, uh, I don't know, I don't know what the technical term is, the pathos, but like whatever he's decided this character is, is like he is acting exactly as somebody in that situation is, is really believable. Somebody who believes he's the greatest criminal mind. And he does do the fact that he's got that sort of lair, that old, you know, subway station, station. Yeah. which is a fantastic Place. lair, fantastic lair. One of the best with its own swimming pool, uh, right in the center of town and how evil he is. Charlie, who there's... else can say that they have a, what was it like a, a central New York address? 30 floors below Lex. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we've got to give them fair play is that Otis and Miss Tess Marker, they allow us to see, the side of Lex, you couldn't have him in there. You know, you got brooding Bruce Wayne in front of his monitors with Alfred saying, I don't like you doing this, sir. And then you've got these two bumbling idiots that show how super intelligent he is. And if you think about it, he does actually work out how to kill Superman and how to, he does actually achieve his goal. Like it's one of those things like the Thanos thing, you know, it's like he does actually do what he wanted to do. And it's just that, when are we talking about reversing time? Uh, the, if it wasn't for Superman reversing time, oh my God, that's slightly, a terrible idea. Slightly silly. That's a terrible idea. They'll never use that again in a movie. Wait till you listen to our Patreon episode about the Donner Cut. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it, he, he actually achieves his goal. So like throughout the film, it's reinforced that he is one of the most interesting criminal minds of our time. Yeah. If not the best. The, the final act stuff, we've got more Marvelous Miniatures with uh, the flooding of the Hoover Dam, uh, Jimmy Olsen being an absolute idiot and just somehow managing to fall off the Hoover Dam. I don't know how that ha happens. I, uh, I'm taking photographs. There's an earthquake. I'm taking yeah. photographs of the earthquake happening. The dam is falling apart beneath me. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Oh, uh, all of a sudden I'm hanging off it. But yes, you've got some some great drama there. Um, you've got the yes, the turning back of time, which is as again, it's it's probably one of the it, it ties into you, you can kind of it kind of sells it in with the whole epicness of the film, but yes, on paper and everything else, it is very it's a very silly concept. 
I'm going to have to stop you there, George. How do you know that isn't what would happen? You know, like if you were to get somebody to do what Superman does and turn the earth around in the opposite direction, how do you know? Can you tell me with absolute certainty that that isn't exactly what would happen? <laughs> well, I mean, that's, you know, on the basis that the earth is round, Charlie. So, Hello, can I? Yeah, sorry, is that Neil deGrasse Tyson? He says he's not sure either. Yeah. No, I don't know who to ask because I think if you asked a scientist, they'd be like, no, <laughs> first off, they'd be like, it's no, of course that wouldn't happen. But like, are you sure? They'd be like, well, are you talking about reversing the entirety of space? Maybe, but like just Earth? No. Like, well, it's, what it's, would happen to the rest of space? You know, well, like. It's, it's, it's a way that the fact that like Earth is like a clock, well, I can spin it this way and correct everything and then i can spin it back and nothing's changed everything's fine and it's like oh okay just just go with it just just don't look don't look charlie just just fly fly. i think the reason they get away with it is that they hadn't been so many time travel films that made us so time travel paradoxy aware as we are today i think people saw this like oh yeah i'm gonna go with it what yeah you just threw two nukes into the space yeah you can stop a fast and the speeding bullet yeah yeah you can rotate the earth and yeah and i think there was probably a lot of people yeah yeah that makes makes anyway i think you and i were in the cinema I think we would have taken it at face value yeah oh oh, totally we are the highly suggestible type Shall shall we wrap up this this film and swear eternal loyalty to Zod? Zod, yes. So, George, time to talk about Superman two. Now, as we've mentioned to our dear listeners, we're going to be going into a lot of depth on the second part of the film because we want to give it a lot of uh, we want to give it its due. But we're going to be separating that. We're going to be covering the Richard Donnaker, which is a separate entity itself for our Patreon listeners. So I think today we're just going to talk a little bit briefly about the original theatrical version of Superman 2 that we grew up with. Mm. Does that sound right? Yes, absolutely. So these are, I say, the the original theatrical cuts. So um, just to uh, jump back into production chat, just to set this up. So... As I say, it always been planned as a, a, a two-part film, a, a part one and part two. Um, however, as they were making the film, I say the production costs kept going up and up. And the the Sulkins said to Richard Donner, oh, you know, the, the budget's getting out of control. And I think at one point Richard Donner was like, well, fuck you, what's my budget? And they couldn't confirm because they kept getting more money and spending more money elsewhere. And as I say... From between like the lines, and I, I don't want to throw too much sh- shade at the Soul Kinds because without them, we wouldn't have these movies. They took a chance on a property no one was, you know, wanted to gamble on, and they succeeded. But yeah, from what you, you can hear, the the reason this film, these films are a success, is down to Richard Donner and and Tom Mankiewicz and 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 all the other people involved. You know, Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, Gene Hackman. Um, but yeah, the production costs kept going up and up. But Warner Brothers liked what they were seeing in the dailies. So Warner Brothers started putting in more money, which um, meant they were getting more return. And obviously the Solkinds were losing money. So the Solkinds were basically, yeah, almost going sort of cap in hand to Warner Brothers, like, oh, can you help us out? We need more money. 
basically yeah we're we're financiers not pop, proper film producers um tom mankowitz was more of a producer assisting donna with all the cre- key creative designs um and the budget got so high warner brothers pushed to get the first movie out just like just get the first movie out and we'll see how it fares because we don't want to keep pumping in money if the first if it the first one's going to be a flop anyway so they originally had it scheduled for summer of 1978 but they had to push it back to Christmas 1978. And it was really down to the wire, even that extra six months. There wasn't time for any previews. They just like, right, we've got to get it out for Christmas or we've, you know, we, we've we've missed our shot. Thankfully, the gamble paid off and the film spent 13 weeks at number one in the US box office. It was a huge hit. Uh, and you would imagine after that, you know, the producers would be like, well done, Richard, Dick Donner, you know, go back to work. Uh, however, they fired Richard Donner. So um, because the the filming, the first filming, Donner had been, had got into so many arguments with the Solkinds, uh, but more importantly, he'd got uh, in so many um, arguments with Pierre Spengler, who was one of the, he was so closely tied to the Solkinds. And, and Dick Donner said, well, if I'm going to come back and complete this film, I'll do it, but I can't I, I can't do it if Pierce Spangler's there. And they were like, well, unfortunately, he's one of the producers and he has to be there. So it's either, you know, you've got you've got to go essentially. Um, but what wow. I didn't but what I didn't realize was that um Richard Lester, who is the um credited director for Superman 2, he was actually brought into the production process halfway through like on superman one so he wasn't just a you know like a you know i think that shows it's not like he it's not it's not a complete deviation the second film yeah so he wasn't like shipped in you know to keep things dc like a a joss whedon sort of botch job he'd been brought on during the production of superman by the soul kinds because he had directed the musketeer movies and so they were like, we can work with Richard Lester. He will help bring production back on board and he will help manage. He knows, he know, he knows how we work. He knows how we work and he can help. He can almost be a middleman between Dick Donner and and the Solkinds. So they brought him on board and he and Dick Donner, I, I don't think ever felt threatened by him. I think they had, there was some, you know, quite good will between the two of them. They worked well together. And that's why it was like when they got rid of Richard Donner, they were like, they turned to Richard Leston like, right, you can pick this up, can't you? Which he did. And as a result, uh, Richard Lester, he's probably most famous for doing uh, the the Beatles movie, Hard Day's Night. His He's much more comedy-based, his, his background. Uh, and he leans into that. He felt Donner's sort of style, as much as he respected it, was a bit too operatic and and melodramatic so he to get director's credit he had to re- reshoot a lot of stuff for superman 2 uh, and that's why there's probably a lot more comedy elements uh, in this in this one than there is in the first one and that's what we remember i think you and i we we enjoy so much of this like when i think of superman 2 i think about the um sorry listeners to bore you with this but there was uh, when i I had uh, George and I were living in Newcastle. We were in a flat, and I went and bought a juicer 
And it was, it was like, it's great. It doesn't use any electricity. You just basically put the orange on and then you lean it down. And George did, just did this hilarious thing where he, he put his thumb in and he pretended to have it caught. And it's just like this image of Superman doing that with, with Lois Lane, she's smoking. There's this whole scene. There's a, And he does the thing with a hat where he throws it behind his head and it lands on. I don't know how many takes that took. You know the scene mm. I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, all There's that. And then there's obviously, I think, George and I's favorite part of this film, which isn't in the Donner Cut, which is the the whole, uh, the worst bellboy in the world who just throws their bags on the floor. He's chewing Every- gum so obnoxiously and it's have a brilliant. happy whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, the bed, the yeah. flames of, of love. love. Put, just tug on the <laughs> for the flames to go higher. Yeah, so there's a lot more comedy in this one, but I think growing up, and correct me if I'm wrong, this was kind of our, and probably as more of a kid's mindset, this was our, we went back to this one more often because... Oh, way more, because it had so much more action. It was so much more accessible. Yeah. Whereas in, you, you You've got the origin earlier. out of the way. And also, because so. I think if we did go back to Superman, we'd skip that. We were young kids. We'd skip that first 45 minutes in Smallville. We just were like, no, show us the bit with the nukes. But even then, you were like, you'd grown up, but it was like, it was Superman 2, Superman 2, Superman 2, because it was start to finish. It was X-Men would go back to this, you know, with um, the attack in the White House with uh, is X-Men yeah. 2. Yeah. Which was great, like great brilliantly idea. shot. But like, that is like the leader of the free world is under attack. That, that, that setup. Uh, with the rockets and the guns and everything. We got to see this in an early 80s style, um, a 1980 version of the White House and all of that. This film has everything. Just on that moment, I don't want to, because uh, watching it around this time, you know, when he has, you are not the president. No one would kneel so quickly. Is that Matt Hancock? It looks very much like Matt Hancock. I'd like to think that Matt Hancock has, <laughs> has formed himself in a, Nobody who leads so many would kneel so quickly. <laughs> when are we going to talk about Zod? Yes. So so obviously Zod is set up at the start. You know, you've got the prologue of, of Superman the movie. He's shouting. He's threatening his revenge before they get trapped in a, a Queen album cover. Um, that's the, <laughs> the Phantom Zone. And that's it, watching it, the opening of this one. There's a distinct lack of Brando, isn't there? There's someone in a dodgy Stormtrooper outfit. And just a quick a recap of what they've done and they've been banished. But then we have the, the Paraset scene. We have the, the a, a, a bomb, terrorists. A lot, I'm having a lot of fun with the language. I got a bit confused where the SAS or whatever the French equivalent was back that I think the GCGN, as they call today, uh, there's a guy on the radio getting instruction in English and feeding it back in English. And there's a guy behind him on a walk. There's a guy with binoculars speaking in English and there's a guy in in French telling the team what to do in French. But then like for the audience, the audience gets it for everything in English first. And then he said, Oh no, but now I'm actually talking to the crack team. I'm going to have to tell them in French because they're French. It is like so. It's a hydrogen bomb. God, hydrogen bombs didn't last that long because I feel like in bond films and you've got to base bond bombs on bond films. Mm. There was the atomic bomb, 
And then we went to the nuclear bomb, but there was this sort of like period where there was the hydrogen bomb. But is that still a nuke? I, um, my, my chemistry is terrible, but I have no... Is it just a different terminology for a nuke? I don't know. I actually think it's probably a precursor to nukes because hydrogen being a gas... No, we're not scientists. We don't. Know I think we'll. Should we just prob- stop that? Should we I just think stop we'll that? Probably cut this. <laughs> um, but uh, there's there's a nuclear bomb in terrorists in uh, in the Alpha Tower. That's terrible. That's why they're called terrorists, Kent. I love that that's line. A, that's a brilliant line. There's actually something that's slightly worse, slightly more terrible. Is we talked about it earlier. There's some terrible ADR and some French. The French stereotypes in these scenes is off the hook. But I love it. It's like an American in Paris. Oh yeah, and then there'll be policemen, and they're really dumb, and they're stupid, and they sound like Z. Stairs, stairs, stairs. Uh, Yeah, it's a bit of a broad brushstroke for me. Did Lois need to be there? That's the only criticism I have. Looking back at it. Charlie, show the the, the age again. We got her on the first Concord. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a weird thing. Yeah, it's a shame we don't have those anymore. But it's, I just think that was, I get it. But I don't think it adds anything. Because like... Mm -hmm. But that's obviously, and we'll get into this when we record the the Donica. This this is all Richard Lester. This this whole Eiffel Tower set piece. It's, it's a good too, set piece. Too, too, it's it's a good set piece, but it's a little bit hammy. It's filmed, and they talked about the the difference between Richard Donner and, and Richard Lester. Is that Dick Donner would spend time waiting for the right lights to get the right shots, whereas for that Paris scene, it was like I remember the the cast saying it was all. It was pissing with rain and Richard Lester was like, yep, yeah, let's just go ahead and shoot it. He was always like, yeah, just just get it done. Get it efficient. Cut. Yeah, yeah, efficient. Whereas Dick Donner was the perfectionist. But yeah, it, it works for releasing Zod and his cohorts. And they are obviously, you know, they're, they're one of the highlights of this film. You know, Terrence Stamp. He's so good. So good in this. He's hamming it up, I've, but he's I've, having having the time of his life. I feel they are the highlight because Superman's already established. We love we love all the other characters. And I think this this would be a case of, you know, like, what does the sequel mean? Well, it means new, new threats, new dimensions, and most importantly, new characters. And we've all had that sequelitis where we go to watch a sequel, like, oh, I didn't, yeah, I know you've got to add new people, but I don't like those people. These three, and I'm including none here, they they really do, they really do make the film. And uh Terence Stamp, I mean, what's all I'd say is about him. It's strange that we haven't had more of him. I haven't watched The Limey for some time, but I can't think, I think of this. I think of him popping up in Bowfinger and I think of The Limey and I know he's done much more, but it's probably before our time. Yeah, I know. I think he, he um, obviously, more Terence Stamp was one of those, yeah, emerging, you know, key actors of the 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 British cinema scene in the sixties and was, you know, one of those like icons along with Michael Caine. Then he kind of disappeared in the seventies. And I think he was like at some hippie retreat in India. Yeah. He, got, he went, what, he went totally granola as the Simpsons would say. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, he like grew his hair and was like living you know, doing yoga in, in India when, yeah. when he got the calls like, Oh, do you want to be in this film? He's like, Oh, maybe I should get him back in the movies. <laughs> um, and yeah, he's as you say, he, he should be he should have been in more stuff and he's still, you know, he's still 
getting work and he still crops up and stuff, but he's such I just a... wish I'd wish he'd been in a Bond film. Do you know? Yeah. He yeah, is just so carbon cut out for a Bond villain. It's unbelievable. But we don't need to see that because you'd just be saying, oh, well, he... I think if he had been a Bond villain, we'd probably be saying, oh, well, he was better as Zod. Yeah. So and, I think this is and, his Bond villain. And you get that. You get that. It's a good level of menace and... And a bit of pantomime camp, isn't it? The sort of the whole, all the Neil stuff. And why do you say this to me? Well, you know I will kill you for it. I love the fact that in this, I think the majority of his lines to Gene Hackman in Superman 2 is basically, kill him. We need to kill him. Kill kill him. him. No one kill him. And most of Gene Hackman's lines, you need me. Don't kill me yet. Don't kill me yet. And yeah, so there's the whole set piece with them uh, going, uh, tearing apart. Well, speaking of Bond, we've got Sheriff J.W. Pepper basically playing, so Clifton James playing the exact same racist, dumb sheriff. No, he's not. He's, he's not, George. He's not playing the exact same sheriff. They basically, what you have to understand here is that Superman, Superman 2, the man from the golden gun. And live and let die. And let all exist in the same universe. Cinematic universe, baby. Could you imagine? Like, I'd love to see Superman, like them re-editing in a few years, like dropping Superman into those Bond films somehow. Or just or Roger in a speedboat just fly off in the background. Maybe that's how that car does that corkscrew turn. Mm. It's actually Superman turning actually- the car. Maybe. So can I can I blow your mind? Uh, so apparently that whole US town set is at Pinewood Studios backlot. It's a place called Copham Common, and it was also used as a, a the set for Skyfall, the end of Skyfall. That's the same like marsh that they've turned into this little American town. Well, I I didn't spot that, but I tell you what I did, what I thought was the most impressive thing about that thing where the uh uh, Kryptonians, uh, the exiled Kryptonians, uh, descend upon. What I thought was really because you, George, and I love miniatures, and this film took miniatures to another level and introduced me to miniatures. I can remember definitely Dad, that helicopter but, scene. <laughs> no, I just remember. I, I no, but this was it was this film that Dad opening a magazine and showing it to me and saying, "Look at this." And it was a picture of what we're going to get to, the third act stuff going on in Metropolis. And it had Christopher Reeve and Tara Stamp and Richard Donner all looking over the miniature into the city. And I was like, what? And that was like, oh, my God, that's what a miniature is. But the reason I want to talk about that, this scene that you're talking about, what I think works so well is the helicopter scene you're talking about. We see the helicopter crash. And like, <laughs> that's that's a miniature. But then they cut back to it. What I love about that is the confidence they show. They're like, yes, we're using miniatures. Yes, we just crashed a miniature helicopter into a miniature building with a ton of gas- gasoline inside. And we did this amazing explosion. But the thing that ties the bow is they cut back to it. Yeah, and the the building's burning down, and it still looks real. Yeah, and, and honestly, that to me was one of the most impressive things I'd seen in that film. I was just like, for its time, the miniature work in this film, and we're going to get to talking about the third act stuff, is another level. Yes. Um. So yes, you've you've got that scene. You've we've we've touched on the the White House attack, and the uh, Matt Hancock is the fake president. Um. <laughs> There's, uh, I noticed there's a picture of Bill Cosby in Perry White's office. Did you notice that? 
I so wanted to talk to you about that and I've cut and I've gone back and it's not Bill Cosby. I haven't actually verified this online. Maybe when I, I get around. I think it is. I, I'm sure I read about it online as well. It is Bill okay. Cosby for some reason. I don't, I, I did exactly, I, I went back. I was like, is that Bill Cosby? Um, yeah. Um, so we haven't talked about, you know, the, the, the key pivotal thing in this, in this film where he decides to become human because he loves, he wants to bone Lois. I mean, he loves Lois and he wants yep. to turn human. And the joke that you made is that he gets into the crystal and turns into an Italian waiter. Yeah, it's just like, let's go for like just a, a holiday waiter type of thing. But like, what what possessed them? She goes in there in full lycra, yellow, red and blue. And he comes out dressed like a waiter. The white shirt, think... black, black chinos and and his hair is floppy as well. It's sort of like... Yeah. Did did those did, did they, was the crystal? Did they give them that that outfit? What's the crystals? Oh, it's set to bland waiter setting. What did you want to come out in? I want to come out looking like a pimp. Um, yeah, no, it's or, or a football star. No, football it's star. um, it's a very. I think it's handled. Okay, I'm in two minds about this. No, I'm just like so. I, th- I think it's better explained in the Donica, which we'll get to. Yeah, because it's it's kind of like how do you handle the whole Kalel and Lois getting it together? How well, how do you yes. how do you how do you I do mean, it? Ke- Kevin Smith has a very sort of graphic response, sort of, you know, basically sperm like a shotgun, you know, s- super sperm. Yeah, but isn't he human? Well, that's it. It depends on the cut, I think, as well, because I think. In, I don't think in, in the, either cut. I don't think in either cut they're doing the no pants dance when he's I, Superman. I think in the Lester cut he's lost his powers, but in the Donner cut he he still got it. Yeah, still yeah. got it. Um, but anyway, we're it's uh, the, we're, we're going into too too much minor detail there. Well, let's get to. So he gets his powers back. Oh, sorry, he gets beaten up by the the trucker. Gets his powers back. And goes to New York to confront Zod for an amazing three-way or four-way fight, I should say. And yeah, that I remember you and I having so much fun enjoying that scene. It's so memorable, and it's really typif- like you know typifies sums up uh, Superman. It's something again that the the Zack Snyder Man of Steel neglects. He cares about collateral damage. The people. He the people. The people. He, he cares about pets, the people. Like he, pets. He cares uh, for like pets. I think we wouldn't have the bombastic films of today had we not had this scene. I love I love this third act. I think it's like it's what we always wanted. And Superman's never been able to achieve it again. And what did they do in Man of Steel? They tried to basically do this. They basically got Zod back and just destroyed the city with CGI. And I'm sorry, but I think all of our listeners would agree. And I think even all of the younger listeners who've watched both Man of Steel more recently, maybe check this out. What looks better? It, it's like, what what works better? I, I, you know, I, like, I don't know about you, Charlie, but I'm just enjoying a, a cool, smooth Marlboro whilst I sip on my Coke. Yeah, there is a lot of product there's, placement. There's but... a horrendous product placement in the in the very impressive fight. Um, 
there's there's a lot of list uh, Richard Lester uh, comedy hijinks as well. There's there's wigs. There's people on phones. There's even a man in a sparkly jacket on roller skates. When I blowing. like that. I like that sort of stuff. Uh, uh, completely unnecessary. It is getting very much into Roger Moore territory, though. Uh, but but does that not say a lot about where we're at with um, with comedy and movies? Because like, look at where we're at right now. Like the fast talking. Like one of the things that stood out with. Let's keep comparing this to modern day comic book films. One thing that Marvel's got going is that whatever you go and see, whether it's Thor or whatever, if you're not into it, you haven't read the magazine, they're really funny. Yeah. They are really funny. And it's done and it's but it's it's all very samey. Uh I think there's there's been times recently where whereas, like, whereas yeah. this is sight gags. This is you know man- no, my point is sign of the times. I think yeah. this was doing what Marvel's still doing today. It's like, yeah, we've got action, yeah, we've got pathos, yeah, we've got drama, but we gotta make the audience laugh because if we don't, they're just gonna say we're not yeah, and, interesting enough or too dramatic. And it's something that Richard Lester would do. Obviously, we're not covering it in this or Patreon at the moment, but Richard Lester has full creative control. He would come back for Superman 3. And I don't know when was the last time you saw Superman wow. 3. But the Superman Love 3... Like 20 years, 20 years at Superman least. Superman 3's opening is pure, is like this, but dialed up. It's all like a Rube Goldberg, like all these accidents were going wrong in Metropolis. I just and... remember a guy in a car yeah. and he's on a fire hydrant. It's, and it's filling like up with water. Yeah. Meant to be real peril, but it doesn't make any sense. Is this on how I how did this get made? I think Pro- it is. Probably. Yes, it is. It is. I think I think I think that's the only thing. If you want to know the last time I watched, I got any inkling of Superman 3 was I think I listened to that podcast episode, Zodcast episode, which is worth a mention. But yeah, Richard Lester has his place. Um, but I love that that scene. And we're not done yet because we've got to go back to the Fortress of Solitude. And we've got to have the ultimate poker hand, the ultimate switch switch and groove. But before that, the, before the switch and bait, we've got to have some complete nonsense powers in this Fortress of Solitude. Are you? Oh, well, there's the. Well, I mean, we haven't talked about this. So when like Zodverse turns up, um, there's some powers that they am I right in thinking is it in the Lester cut the whole thing moving stuff with your fingers is that in both versions essentially there is it seems like there's a lot of made up superpowers in this in terms of as you say like telekinesis and and then you the get Lester into- cut does have the really silly stuff though the, yeah. the original th- theatrical release has the oh the thing on my chest it's actually what is that george explain it to what, to me like what, i'm a five-year-old well there's there's a, there's a family guy <laughs> sketch on it prepare to be destroyed superman what was that yeah take that you jerk that was a minor inconvenience yeah well that's the idea slowed you down i'll say ow didn't see that coming did you no yeah well you know take that it's completely pointless, the giant cellophane <laughs> S. And then there's a bit where they're all disappearing and reappearing. Zoom, 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 yeah, zoom, 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 And he turns into ice at one point or something. And he it's keeps com- reappearing yeah. and going everywhere. Yeah, and he's like, oh, yeah, I never was good at this game as a kid. It's like, what? What this game are you playing? The disappearing game where you're in the Fortress of Solitude? Did you play this by yourself? Which game? It does, does not make sense. Um... But yes, then uh, he does. He, he does a switch and bait. He he switches the powers around, makes them weak. 
And if they... you hadn't got it, then we'll get some exposition from Gene Hackman explaining. If uh, you were in there, um, you poisonous snake. Um, but then I think Superman and Lois should probably lay low as they're now probably wanted for murder. Because like, because the, they get rid of all the Kryptonians into like a, a an icy abyss, and we never see them ever again. Yeah. So like basically punching them into an abyss, and like Lois does that with um, with Ursa, and there is some there is some random cut again. We can we can talk about this in our our special, but there's a random TV cut where you see it's like the Arctic police have like captured Zod, Non, and Ursa, and take them to jail. So they do survive in an alternate cut. But in a theatrical cut, they are effectively dead. I don't know. It's it's weird because he kind of just throws them into the wall and then they fall down into the icy ocean. Into the dried ice. Into the dried ice smoke machine. But they've got superhuman power, so they're not dead. No, no, but they've been Uh, depowered, Charlie. So oh sorry, no, no, you're right. So So they'd freeze to death. So they probably will be wanted for murder. I, I like the idea of them just freezing to death, um, and just and there's just a Zod bobbing around in an ice cube waiting yeah. to thaw. Revenge, revenge. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think, um, as I say, the dynamic between the three of them. I think it's great that they have the show down there. I think, I think we'll get into this in more detail in our Patreon episode. Yeah, because I think more time is given to both the Fortress of Solitude and the development of these three characters. But the good news is, I think the one thing we can all agree is that Superman 1, Superman 2, and Superman 2, The Donica, are all great films worth a watch. And we've actually got more content than we could ever hope for, but it's completely understandable why we got the theatrical releases we did. Yes, yes, indeed. And yeah, they they are great films. You know, I, I really enjoy revisiting them but yeah i say probably the second one has probably got has got more repeat viewing because it's it's less less epic and it kind of yeah loses some of the epicness but it gets straight into the action as as we said so yes i, I think we'll we'll get and i think that. we'll go we will definitely i think what will be enjoyable when we get to the patreon episode is that we'll be able to go into we'll go back into superman one so we're not done with that yet because it obviously features so highly. And we'd be able to talk a lot more about the entirety of the project and what led to the need for the, the Donner cut in that there was just so much shot. So this has been the theatrical release one and two and our next episode, which is be available on Patreon will be everything else. And believe me, if you're a fan, if you've seen what's on the DVDs on the different versions, there's a lot more to cover. So shall we just quickly round up? Because I didn't realize we've been chatting for a while. Should we? I'll talk very quickly on coulda, woulda, shoulda. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. So George, coulda, woulda, shoulda, Jeff Goldblum hasn't been invented, but he's still got something to say. Neither's Chris. Celine Dion's not a star yet. Jeff Goldblum isn't a movie star. Well, I think he is. Anyway, it's coulda, woulda, shoulda. So, as I said, because of when they were casting for this film and they were trying to get as big big names as possible, Superman was such an, and still is such an iconic character, 
it was basically put out to everyone and it was it was almost like it was such a big deal in terms of yeah they're making a superman movie who, who's going to go for it and the casting director a guy called uh lynn stolmaster first suggested christopher reeve quite early on but donna and the producers uh, ruled him out because they said he, he he felt too young and skinny but they yeah i say they literally spoke or approached or tried to approach every male actor in hollywood and maybe even people that weren't actors so this is just some of a list of people that were considered so olympic champion bruce jenner auditioned for the role brucey now, baby i can't also, think of anybody more masculine also known now known as caitlin jenner i do not retract my previous statement <laughs> Patrick Wayne, uh, son of John Wayne, was considered, but he dropped out when John Wayne was diagnosed with cancer. Neil Diamond. I had a, I had a meeting with the producers. So Neil Diamond uh, had a, an unsuccessful meeting with the producers. Wow. Um, but uh, there's another guy who, uh, I, I mean, I'm, if you've got a superhero. And you need muscles. And I mean, this is the 70s. I've just done pumping iron. That So Schwarzenegger was actually considered. And the soul kinds were like, well, how do we get around his accent? It was like, oh, well, maybe we could say it's a Kryptonian. It's an thing. alien accent. It's east yeah. from the same planet as Gal Gadot. So, <laughs> so yeah, Schwarzenegger was considered. Uh, and, and then they quickly got rid of that idea. Um, the people! <laughs> come on! Zad, um, <laughs> um, Stallone. Um, so Stallone was coming off the back of get uh, the fuck the, out of here. <laughs> so St- Stallone was coming off the back of uh, success for Rocky, and Ilya Solkan said he was a wonderful actor, but too Italian for the mythology of the comics. So that's a very diplomatic well, way. You know, millions of people are going to die. Loves Krypton, you know, Uh, little star. Could you imagine Stallone trying to fucking Clark Kent stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Stallone doing slapstick. Uh, Fuck out of here. uh, I was at home reading Dickens. More sort of actorly actors. You had James Brolin, Nick Nolte. Apparently, he wanted to play Superman as a schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> um, Chris Christopherson, Charles Bronson, Warren Beatty was offered the role and turned it down. Warren um, Beatty could have done it, I reckon. Warren Beatty just said he he felt he'd be too uh, he felt too silly doing it. And I think it was Richard Donner said, it was either about Warren Beatty or Robert Redford, and said, people are just going to look at it and say, well, that's Robert Redford, that's Warren Beatty. We need it. We need an unknown. Yeah, we, we, yeah they're, they're not going to see a character, they're just going to see the actor. One of your favourites, Charlie, James Kahn, said he was offered it, but just couldn't wear that suit. Oh my God. Yeah, I just, I'd love to see him getting it. He just, could you imagine him being as a hero? Yeah, no. And yeah, Tom Anquit said, we found guys with fabulous physique who couldn't act or wonderful actors who did not look remotely like Superman. Um, <laughs> apparently, the search became so desperate that producer Ilya Solkind's wife's dentist was screen tested. Well, my dentist looks a bit like Superman. <laughs> you know, you're a pretty good guy and you're good with drills. OK, yeah. let's 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 give him a screen test. Um, but 
you know, Charlie, there was one guy that was considered, uh, you know, from big in the 70s. No, Um, no. yes, Yes, he was. He was he was actually I know Charlie and I joke about Christopher Walken just as an excuse to get in Walken into coulda, woulda, shoulda. Um, but he was actively considered. And Ilya Solkind said, yeah, probably on hindsight, he would have made a great Luther. So, you know, Lois, do you really think losing your life is really (laughs) worth it over an Oh my god, yeah. Statistically speaking, Lois. <laughs> um so yes. Could we was... just AI like remake all of our favorite films with Christopher Walken in Well, them? one guy's Please. doing it with, with Arnie, so I'm sure it's you know, only it's a matter of time. Only a matter of time. So in terms of um Lois Lane's Stockard Channing was was screen tested, so she's you know Rizzo from Greece, but they okay. said that she was almost too feisty for Christopher Reeve. Like she would have like overshadowed because she was like such a, a powerful presence. Whereas the, the chemistry was better between Margot Kidder and Christopher Reeve uh, and Anne Archer as well. And I, I thought her name was familiar and she plays Harrison Ford's wife in Patriot games and clear and present danger. And she's also in fatal attraction. So she was considered as well. Don't we see Margot Kidder in anything else? Not really. I don't think she's out of anything of... Oh, she was in um, the Amityville Horror, I think, was the only other big film that she did. But yeah, obviously, she was quite typecast and didn't do much. Christopher Reeve was quite typecast. But I'll quickly get on to directors that were considered. So both William Friedkin, who's the director of The Exorcist, and Sam Peckinpah were... Uh, offered a chance to direct um freaking turned it down and apparently peckinpah didn't go his meeting with Solkind didn't go too well when he pulled out a gun during a meeting i think peckinpah was a bit of a gun nut so richard lester i say he was considered um and was brought on later on guy hamilton we've talked about george lucas was considered but obviously at the time he was making star wars and also Spielberg. So when they were looking at, you know, production was going in the mid seventies, Ilya Silkind really what he was like, you know, this, this, this guy, a lot of people are chatting about Spielberg and uh, mm-hmm. Alex Solkind, you know, Solkind senior said, uh, let's see how the big fish movie turns out and then we can approach him. And uh, obviously Jaws became a huge hit. And when they went to try and go approach Spielberg after he was like, yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> So, yes, so it could have been very different for a multitude of reasons. An epic film of epic proportions. A really big film for me. Yeah, George is into his Batman. I was into Batman too, but there was always part of me was thinking, God, Batman's so much more cooler than Superman. But I was never ashamed. It was, I was target audience. And very emotional to go back to this. This is like a childhood hero. And they're still great films. They are, you put this film on, it is like a Bond film. It's uh, it's like a Back to the Future. It is. Mm. It's it's that level. It's just, in some cases, if you're looking at the first film, it takes a bit to get going. But the second film, much more up there with some of the greatest, at least one of the greatest super, superhero films out there. What I would say is um, I've I've taken there's um, a 
one book in particular has been really helpful in my research for the very drawn out production of these films and if you are a fan of the superman films i would recommend you checking it out it's called superman versus hollywood uh, and it's by a guy called jake rosson it's available on kindle but i'm sure it's available in other good and evil bookshops but yeah, it's uh, a fascinating insight, especially into these films. Uh, it goes all the way up. It charts um, all the sort of film and TV appearances of Superman right up until I think it's uh, it finishes after uh, Superman Returns. So it doesn't get as far as obviously the Zack Snyder stuff, but it's a real interesting insight into, and it details all the stuff about the the failed Tim Burton Superman Lives with um, with Nick Cage. Nicholas Cage, wow. Yeah, again, I think Christopher Walken was considered for that film, but that's a that's a a, a different story in a different podcast. But yeah, if you're a Superman fan, you love these films, you like reading about film production a bit like I do. Check out this book. I've I found it a really riveting read. Wonderful. Okay. Well, as per usual, you can get us on all the usual channels. There's retroramble.blog. Get us on patreon.com forward slash retroramble. And there is more Superman to come on that Patreon channel. I'm not sure. Is there anything else we need to mention, George? No, just the obligatory thing of, you know, if you enjoy this podcast and you haven't done already, please leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. It does make us more visible to more people or or even better, recommend us to uh, like-minded folk uh, because we're a little independent podcast and we do value your support. And George doesn't want to have to hunt you down and make you swear eternal loyalty to the pod. Okay. For this episode, I've been Charlie McGee. I've been General George McGee. He's a general. He's a general. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.